Welcome to Old Walls House. It's your main man and host, Old Walls. I'm back. Episode 17, coming your way. Got a really fun episode coming your way, guys. I got not one, not two, but three guests this week. Going to be talking a little NFL draft, the Kentucky Derby, previewing Canelo and Beevil. UFC 274, recapping a couple of great boxing matches this week as well. Just a really fun episode. But before we get to that, you know we got to cover that housekeeping. So please, if you could, please rate, review, subscribe, comment, share it with your friends, share it with all your peeps. I really appreciate it. I want to thank you guys so much while I'm at it. Just thank you, thank you, thank you for all your continued listening. And if you guys could, just just tell everybody about it. So, like I said, fun, fun, fun show. Big show coming your guys' way. We're going to start with the NFL Draft. We're going to talk Kentucky Derby. Got a lot of great guests, so let's get to it. Okay, now to talk about the NFL Draft. Welcoming back our favorite contributor to the pod, MJ, and the guest who, who spurned us last week with a mystery illness, Billy. MJ and Billy, welcome to Old Wall's house. Good to be here. Thanks for having me, Walls. Yeah, so Bill, do you want, I mean, are you feeling better? Are you up to it this week? I know you, you were dealing with some kind of mystery sickness last week that uh, forced you to back out. So are you back up to full strength? I'd say I'm a good 90 to 95% right now. Um, well, good of you to uh, battle through it and join us here. Let's uh, let's get into this. So um, right from the start, there was kind of a little bit of a surprise. Aiden Hutchinson did not go number one overall. It was Trayvon Walker, the DN from, uh, from Georgia. MJ, you and I talked a little bit about how he kind of snuck up the rankings Mostly because the uh, the media was kind of slow to catch on. Were you surprised at all that he went number one? No, I, I don't think I was. Um, especially, I always feel like the last week, kind of leading up to the draft, you kind of really start to hear kind of who it's going to be. With the occasional years where there's a surprise, like, you know, maybe like a ba Baker Mayfield year or something like that. But, um, you know, it was either going to be Walker or Hutchinson. And I think it, it probably came down in the last few days for... Um, for Jacksonville, and uh, I think they got a really, really good player. Um, whether or not they would have probably picked even like the top five guys, even somebody like a Sauce Gardner. So um, it didn't surprise me at all at a premier position like uh, defensive end, and they got a really, really good player. And obviously, you know, the NFL draft turned into the Georgia Bulldog show with like 15 or so of them being drafted, and that was the first one. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. A ton of Georgia Bulldogs. And Bill, I think you said this earlier when we were just chatting offline. I believe that no Texas Longhorns were picked at all this year. Yeah, I saw that on uh, Twitter that of the 262 picks, not a single one was from uh, Texas. Which is an incredible stat. I mean, you know, we're all about the same age. I mean, growing up, it was felt like every like what was the Georgia Bulldog show this year? It felt like every other draft when we were kids, was that way with Texas. 
Um, yeah. Even if they weren't winning national titles, they were sending out 10, 15 guys to the to the league every year. So just kind of a crazy, uh, a crazy stat about Texas. Um, and then kind of the next big storyline is, you know, they go six, uh, five, sorry, five straight defensive players before Iki Iquanu is the first offensive player off the board at number six. But then the big storyline right after that is the run on wide receivers. You have Drake London go at number eight, Garrett Wilson at 10, Alave at 11, Jamison Williams at 12, and then uh, Jahan Dotson up at 16, and Traylon Burks at 18. Now, Bill, that was uh, as soon as that started happening, I do need to mention Bill is uh, a fellow Packer fan. We have a a running text thread during every Packer game of us just bitching and moaning about all the bad stuff that happens. Um, so when that first receiver went off the board at eight, what were you thinking? I haven't thought that they were going to take a wide receiver in the first round at all. I think I had texted you maybe the day before and was like, there's no way they're taking a wide receiver because everyone wanted them to take a wide receiver. And they always seem to do the opposite of what everyone thinks. So when the when the wide receiver run started, you weren't even thinking about it anyway, so you weren't even phased. No, I didn't think they were going to do anything to get involved. And then, yeah, once the one went, it was like you knew that they were just going to start coming off. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, even, too, like while the wide receivers are coming off the board, you're getting the stuff coming in about uh, Hollywood Brown and A.J. Brown, like all getting traded, which – ESPN did a pretty bad job. All this stuff was happening, and it was nowhere on the screen, like as the draft was happening. Yeah, the trades especially. I'm scrolling through Twitter and, like, seeing the news of the trades, and, like, 10, 15 minutes later it felt like the trades were getting read off on ESPN. I was like, man, how does every like, is it just taking them that long to keep up with it and transfer, or do they just have such a plan? But, yeah, I was – I think in our conversations, I was a little more hopeful going into uh, Thursday that the Packers were going to make a move and, and, you know, hopefully a wide receiver would fall. But if not, package up some picks and move up. But as soon as I saw Drake London go at eight, I was like, man, this is starting way earlier than I thought. And I was like, man, they're they're way too conservative to move up. They're going to sit back and kind of do what they did. MJ, what were, you know, I don't think the Cowboys are really in the you know the market for a, a wide receiver, but what were you thinking as that run kind of started? So, I mean, it was a, a pipe dream of mine a little bit for the Cowboys to maybe go up and, and get maybe like a Drake London, which I know reading some things, I think um, the front office there for the Cowboys like Drake London. I think if they were going to go up for somebody, it was going to be him. But even on the Packers side of thing, I mean, you guys are my good friends and stuff too. And, um, you know, I, I kind of tried to hint to you that, and even Bill a little bit, that if the Packers were going to get a receiver that they really, really liked, they were going to have to probably go and get one. Mm-hmm. You know, it was going to take a trade. It was going to take something, even if it wasn't in the draft, like a trade like the Eagles or, you know, a trade like Arizona did. They were going to have to do something because unless you were in that top 15, you weren't probably going to get um, a top-tier draft pick wide receiver 
Um, unless something crazy happened, um, you know, like a Nicobe Dean linebacker type thing where, you know, people are just kind of like, oh, we must not know something that the league does. And then maybe you get your guy that way. But, uh, you know, it was one of those things where I felt bad for you guys because I know I know the feeling, obviously, of, you know, disappointment being a Cowboys fan. <laughs> so I know like not getting that receiver um, that you really, really you know, covet, it, it's it's tough to handle. But um, I will say I think Green Bay did a, a pretty good job um, in the first two rounds, at least. I think so. Yeah, I was in texting with Bill. I was pretty pissed kind of going to sleep Thursday night like I had said I probably was going to be. Moved away from a room with the TV at foot level. So we went to a room with the TV mounted up on the wall so that there was no availability of a TV to punt across the room. So I avoided that situation. But I felt a lot better with what the Packers did starting round two, moving up, going and getting a receiver. And now when you pair that with kind of the rest of their draft, I feel a lot better with it. Bill, what were you thinking and feeling coming out of the first round? And then, like I said, how did you feel once they kind of made that move to start the second? I mean, the the Quay Walker pick was a little – like I wasn't super familiar with him. I mean, everyone knew – Nicobe Dean as the big time, you know, Georgia inside linebacker. But what I actually saw um, was that Dean apparently chose not to have a shoulder surgery, and that's what made him slide. Mm-hmm. I guess teams were ended up being really concerned with the shoulder. Um, but you know, Quay Walker, and then they got Devontae Wyatt the D tackle. I'm, I'm not upset with them going defense. I mean, the defense played really well last year for what feels like the first time in a long time. And now hopefully these are just a couple more pieces to make it better. Um, I had a feeling they were going to grab a wide receiver in the second. Um, I almost think that's going to be like their thing now. It's almost like they kind of – they like to kind of like put that in people's face almost. Like, Jordy Nelson was a second-round pick. Devontae was a second-round pick. I think that's kind of become their thing. Like, oh, we can get a guy in the second, and he'll end up being just as good as these guys in the first. Yeah, it seems like it's the Packer thing to do. Like you said, they were, it almost felt like, yeah, we're not taking a receiver in the first round because we're not just, like, giving into peer pressure. And we're going to be, like, the crafty small-town team and figure out our own little, our own little way to do it. Yeah, exactly. I just I feel like that that's always tell you others. They're so conservative and just set in their ways that they're not gonna they're not gonna get bullied into uh going up and getting a wide like making a flashing pick, basically. Yeah, and, and a lot of the stuff I read going into this was that there was a lot of good receivers back in like the second and third round that were there to be taken. Um so I I was a little surprised they went all the way up to thirty four because they had what, fifty eight and sixty if I'm not mistaken, or, or somewhere right in that window. Um, so they moved up a long way. So they must like this Christian Watson guy, and they were you know, kind of determined to get that. Um, stepping off the Packers for a second, back to the Cowboys. MJ, how did you feel about the first-round pick of the Cowboys? I know that one was kind of a little bit of a shocker, if I'm correct in that thinking, right? Yeah. Um, I will say, you know, I was, I was with Bill the night of the draft, the first round. And I know he can probably verify that I wasn't I wasn't thrilled um, with the Cowboys pick, but I'm gonna I'm gonna do something really quick. So I'm gonna I'm gonna be positive, and then I'm gonna go a little negative. Okay. So the positives I think with Smith is 
actually all three or four or five of the draft picks that the Cowboys had, they're just big, nasty guys. You know, Sam Williams, the DN from Old Miss, is just like a, a brute guy, super fast, long, athletic. Uh, Jalen Tolbert, the wide receiver of South Alabama, super fast, can get up and, you know, do con- contested catches and all this stuff. And Ferguson, the tight end, Wisconsin, is just kind of a ho-hum tight end. But Tyler Smith, you know, all this good stuff. They did a great job with Terrence Steele, um, their right tackle, developing him over the last three or four years now as kind of like their swing guy, now replacing Lyle Collins. So I feel pretty good that, hey, you know, Tyler Smith's got a lot of talent, a high ceiling. They can develop this kid at left guard, maybe move him out to right tackle sooner or later. And I'm going to have faith in the coaching staff to hopefully develop this guy. All right, that's my positive take. Would you like to hear my negative take? Absolutely. So it's just the same old bullshit. It, it's it's this ridiculous thing of and and Bill and maybe even you Wally can, can uh, you know t- kind of tell the listeners that I've been like this. The Cowboys know who they're drafting a month before the draft. The Leighton Vander Esch pick was a pick at seventeen a couple years ago, and I could have told everyone in the world that that was who they were going to get. I think the only surprise in the draft was CD Lamb, and I'm just tired of being like, okay, the Cowboys are going to draft. Offensive line, defensive end, wide receiver slash maybe tight end. And what were their first four picks? Offensive tackle, defensive end, wide receiver, and a tight end. And it's just so – and then this stupid delusional moron, Jerry Jones, Friday (laughs) before the second and third round gets in a press conference and shows the media his second and third round grades to the media. He holds up the board and says, hey, everybody, we had Tyler Smith from Tulsa number 16 on our big board. Well, too bad. Everybody else had him maybe in the top 50, Jerry. You stupid asshole. Like, you and your son need to get a life and just fire yourselves and let somebody come in. You can still own the team, make millions and billions of dollars, but it's so frustrating how you can and like Mike McCarthy and Will McClay, their their you know head coach, their top like scout guy, are seriously looking at Jerry like, what the hell are you doing showing that right now? Like that's just gonna if anybody gets their hands on that, every team in the NFL is gonna be like, well, the Cowboys like this guy, so we're gonna trade it up in front of him and get him. Like it was just so frustrating. I like the players overall. I think they did a good job filling needs. But you know me, man. I am a best player available guy. And it just feels like we're getting back to the Tony Romo days where we're like, you know what? We're just going to let Dak try to do everything. And we're not going to try to build a team around this guy until it's too late and he's been beat up for nine years. And then we'll try to save him. Tell me how you really feel, MJ. I love it, man. I love it. Sorry. Getting, getting heated. I was fully expecting to come into today and talk that way about the Packers because of, you know, kind of the same things you said. Like, it felt like Packers is always business as usual. And, Bill, I'm sure you can attest to this. It's, you know, we've kind of, you know, joked. I don't know if joke is the right word. It's kind of like, you know, predict our our fate the last couple years. That You know, the Packers do the same thing every year. They do the same thing in the draft, same thing in free agency, win the North. And then losing, you know, a, a cup, win a playoff game, and then lose in the conference uh, championship, or hell, then won't even make the conference championship anymore. So I totally get where you're coming from there. 
it uh, it can be really frustrating, and I at least felt a. I don't feel quite like that for the Packers this year. I mean, maybe Bill, maybe you've got a little different feeling, but uh, do you feel the same way, or do you have a little optimism in the way they just ran the draft? I mean, I, I overall I like what they did. They grabbed, uh, you know, they got Watson in the second, big, long, fast, kind of. Also, he drops the ball a ton, so he's a perfect replacement for Valdez Scantling because he can't fucking catch. Um, but I do like that they, they then they grabbed another receiver in the fourth, a guy out of Nevada, um, and they took three offensive linemen, and I think all three of them can play multiple positions. Um, a lot of them, when they were drafted, like it said, like guard tackle. Um, and then they, I think the guy out of Wake Forest, Zach Tom, mm-hmm. I believe, has played center guard and tackle. So, and I mean, that's what Green Bay likes. They always like getting guys who can play multiple positions. So, you know, they got a couple receivers, some depths on the O-line. You know, there's been a lot of injuries there. So that's good. Um, so, I mean, I'm optimistic for once. Yeah, it's a, it's a weird feeling. I was going to point out what you said about Zach Tom as well, that they interviewed him about, like, what position. He's like, I don't like to be, you know, I like to – I don't remember the exact quote, but he's like, I lo- I'm versatile. I like to view myself as versatile. So that'll help to be able to kind of have that plug-and-play. Um, line was obviously really banged up last year for the Packers, so definitely needed some some extra depth there. So if, uh, go ahead. If, if you get a chance, uh, they took, I believe it was, is it Rasheed Wallace? Walker. Rasheed Walker. Um, they took him in the seventh round. He's a Penn State guy, but he's a, he's got a pretty good clip online. You might want to go take a look at it sometime. I did. Is that the, the guy who uh, tackled the guy and then uh, gave him a couple air humps on the way? Is that that guy, right? Yeah, he gets a nice pancake block and gives the guy a couple extra thrusts to let him know what the deal is. <laughs> I did like that. Yeah, you got to have a little swagger up on that line. And uh, good size to Rasheed. I just pulled Rasheed Walker up. Good size, 6'6", 313. So really, uh, really adding some size to the line. So kind of another big thing moving away from just the Cowboys and Packers that happened the uh, draft night was Malik Willis was a guy who was projected to go up in the top 20. And, you know, some drafts even saw him up in the top 10. He falls all the way to third. I haven't seen much about what the deal was there. Um, what did you guys kind of heard about that? Do you want to go first? All that I saw on it was that Liberty runs a very simple offense. Um, and a lot of teams, I guess, just don't know if mentally he's ready uh, to take that next step because of how simple the, the offense was there. But that was pretty much it. I mean, athletically, I mean, he's incredibly gifted. So I'm assuming that's mostly what it is. Yeah, and I, I kind of I agree. I think uh, the the interview process must have been at least a little poor because I feel like anything before that, I heard how you know how smart he is, athletic, you know, strong arm, basically a strong armed uh, Russell, which is pretty good praise, I think, for a guy. But even I, the biggest surprise to me was just the I, I think the league showed 
their feelings on quarterbacks in this draft in the first place. I mean, with Pickett going in the first, one quarterback, and then basically everybody else went in the third. Um, Desmond Ritter went to Atlanta um, in the third round, like early before Willis. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, Willis goes, at, I think, at like pick 20 or 22 um, to Tennessee, which Tennessee is one of my teams that I kind of cheer for. But um, I, I think it could end up being a really, really good pick for Tennessee. Um, and then, you know, Carolina goes Matt Carroll a, a few picks later out of Ole Miss. And Sam Howell didn't even go until the fifth round. And I think it just kind of showed you this this year's quarterback class just I don't think was looked at from the league as really a, a top-tier class at all. Yeah, and that was pretty evident coming in. You know, the only two quarterbacks even mentioned for, as first-round picks were uh, Willis and then Kenny Pickett, who, like you said, went 20th to Pittsburgh. And that just felt like with him sitting there when it got the 20 for the Steelers, like it just felt like a pick they almost had to make. Like he's the Pittsburgh kid. He's played, you know, college ball at Pittsburgh, you know, been in the stadium. It, it just felt like it was the – the safe choice, I guess, like, hey, just pick the hometown kid. And, you know, he knows at least a little bit of the weather. He's, you know, they don't play December, January football in in college at home games. But, you know, it, it at least has – and he at least has, you know, the, the know of the Pittsburgh and everything in that area. So I wasn't surprised there. I mean, I don't think that was all that shocking either. You guys, I mean, if you, if you did think so, yeah, let me know. But um, any shock in, in that pick, Bill? I don't think so. I mean, I you could almost kind of see it coming as he was still sitting there. I think Pittsburgh's kind of done this type of thing before. They like to grab, you know, the hometown guys. Um, and I almost feel like, too, it's like you said, it's like a safe thing because if he ends up being a bust, it almost feels like they're going to get a pass mm-hmm. because he's the Pittsburgh guy and they were just trying to, you know, hometown boy, let's make this work. And I feel like if he doesn't, it's they're not going to get – you know, destroyed like they would have if they take, say they took Willis there and he ends up being a huge bust, you know, they're going to get, you know, just drags for it. Yeah. But I think with him, it's the safe, it's the safe thing. Yeah. It's an all upside pick because if he turns out to be a decent player, it's like, oh, they, they were smart. They drafted the kid who's been in Pittsburgh. He knew what, you know, the Pittsburgh mentality and, you know, all that dumb bullshit. And they just kind of get to run with him and be like, oh, yeah, we knew. We saw him in town, and we could just tell that this was our guy. So I think it's, like you said, it's safe. There's no real downside, and there's a ton of upside. Um, but but swinging back to Wilson, was this the farthest, like, um, uh, like kind of a, a top projected pick has fallen in a long time? I mean, I can't think of anybody else who's fallen quite like that. I, I think it's just about – I think we like as like the like just normal fans and stuff and even like somewhat of the media I think just wants those quarterbacks to go early like it's mm-hmm. such that premier like position and a lot of years where we're like ah oh, these quarterbacks are kind of trash you know all that kind of stuff no matter what all of a sudden they're like trading for them in the top five top ten and we're like what the hell's going on you know you're Daniel Jones and even your you know there's a lot of picks but then all of a sudden this year it's just like wow like they don't like these guys at all like you know they might have good you know qualities and um upside and things like that but they're not really putting the house on them at all so i I think that was kind of my big it wasn't too much of a surprise just because you know i know last week i kind of mentioned a few times of just how it just felt like this was a year where no one really had 
the same rank on a lot of these guys. You could see Willis going two to Detroit or dropping like he kind of did. Yeah, I couldn't think. I haven't. I can't. And I'm not the biggest like draft historian, but I mean, I, the last thing I time I remember someone falling like this was Rogers when him and Alex Smith were kind of. Uh, you know, being bantered back and forth about who would be the number one pick that year, and then Rodgers ends up falling back to twenty four to the Packers. But obviously, this this could be way worse the way you, depending on how you look at it. Because I mean, Willis was never intended to be a, like a unanimous number one you know pick or anything like that. But falling back to the third is really something. Do you think it's just this year, or do you think this sets a tr- a little bit more of a trend on quarterback? Why don't we start with Bill on that one? Yeah, I don't. It almost feels like an outlier, just because it seems like every year people are trying so hard to find their guy, and they're willing to give up so much to go get him. I mean, I can't remember. Maybe MJ, you remember a little better than I do, but I can't remember the last time there was a draft where the quarterbacks were not like no one gave a shit about them this year. It felt like. I mean, you had a couple, you know, in the last few years, you have teams making all kinds of moves just to get up a couple of spots to grab a quarterback who, you know, may not have been like, what was it a couple of years ago? Was it uh, Josh Rosen? Yeah. They made big moves to go in. That was like kind of like the same thing. Like, oh, I don't know if this guy's going to have it or not, but everyone wants to get their guy. It was, it, it felt weird that even though the grades were down and these guys weren't seen as that great, that someone didn't try to, you know, go up and make their play. That no one like fell in love with any of these guys. Yeah, I just weird. pulled up I, as we were as you were talking there, Bill. I pulled up kind of some of the worst draft classes of for quarterbacks, and some of the more recent ones that they list are like 2010. But like there, you had Sam Bradford as like the number one pick. Tebow was there. Jimmy Clausen went in the second. Colt McCoy went in the third. Like I feel like yeah, those names were talked great. about a lot more. Um, 2015 had Jameis Winston and Marcus Mariota. Not much depth beyond that. Uh, 2002 had a bunch that they list as a bad year, probably more because of the way they all turned out. But if I, I'm, you know, that's going back ways. But David Carr, Joey Harrington, and Patrick Ramsey all went in the first round. And, you know, Carr went one and Harrington went three. And those guys were very talked about um, going to that. But the, the year that was really bad recently is 2013. In the first round, the only QB taken was E.J. Manuel. I believe he was a Florida State guy, right, Bill? He sure was. Uh, Number two in the second quarterback taken was Geno Smith in the second round. Uh, Then Seattle's current starter. (laughs) That's a good point. He's kind of having a career resurgence. And then they had Glennon in the third, and then there was kind of a litany of People have been backups, Matt Barkley, Ryan Nassib, Tyler Wilson, and Landry Jones all in the fourth. So that uh, that's the one that it, you know it feels most similar to. Um, and it, these teams might just be sitting there like, you know, this kind of compares to those years a little bit, those kind of outlying years. And they might just say, hey, we don't think these guys are starting caliber players. Like even Pickett maybe a little bit. Like he might have like some some upside and Willis has a lot of upside. Ritter, a lot of people think like Atlanta could have like a, a good chance there. But don't they kind of feel to you guys like in like five years from now, we're just going to be like, mm, they're probably just like a couple of them are just like backups. Yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, if you look though, if if you look at the the picks after uh, Pittsburgh, I don't know that Pickett goes if Pittsburgh isn't there to take him because the teams drafting after him are the Chiefs. They're not taking the quarterback. Packers no. Bills no. Cowboys. Ravens. Jets are really the only one that's a maybe because. After that is then the Jags, the Packers again, the Patriots, the Chiefs again, the Bengals, and the Vikings were there too. But So it would have been very possible if Pickett got through Pittsburgh that there would have been no quarterback taken. So I don't know, man. Green Bay probably would have grabbed Pickett if he was still there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was I – was, I, there were definitely a couple texts and tweets sent around that uh, – when uh, you know twenty two and twenty eight, one of those was just lining up really, really well for Malik Willis. So I am, I almost would have loved to see that just to see the fucking world burn because it would have been incredible. Yeah, it would have been crazy. Get Jordan Love a backup. Yeah, you know? yeah. Always, uh, always necessary. You know, I mean, the, you could just draft somebody to replace Jordan Love because he sucks. So, yeah, so does Pickett. So. <laughs> You better get rid of that ball in Pittsburgh, man. I'm telling you, that guy holds it on for three or four seconds, man. The NFL, he's gonna get he's gonna get killed if Pittsburgh doesn't protect him. Yeah, those get small hands too. Tough division now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, talk about yeah. Is that one of the tough? That's got to be one of the toughest divisions in the league. I, yeah, I mean, I think if Pittsburgh plays Pickett right away, I think they're the worst team in the in that. Yeah, I don't even think. I think that's. I don't even know if it's questionable if they're the worst team in in the division. I mean, you know, assuming Watson plays. Yeah. Well, guys, that was most of my stuff that I had for the draft. Do you guys have anything else that that came to your mind, whether you know draft related or or anything else? I'll go first. Hit me. Yeah, uh, I, man, I tell you, I feel like every year we talk about um, the Ravens having a really good draft. I know, you know, we're not all Cowboys Packers and Pittsburgh fans out there, so I was trying to think of some other teams that have done well. The Ravens, man, I, I think they could have had like four potential first-round uh, grades on the, the Hamilton, Linderbaum, um, Ajabo, the linebacker from Michigan, Jones from UConn. So if you're a Ravens fan, I feel like you should be feeling really, really good. Um, the Jets, I thought, really good. Best, best, best wide receiver, a top three to five defensive end in Jermaine Johnson. Uh, Brees Hall in the second, early second round. I think that a, a really good um, kind of loadout um, of players. And then I hate to say it, man, but I think Philadelphia did a really good job um, with Davis in the first round, trading for AJ Brown, and you know, really trying to put the pressure on Jalen Hurts. Um, to uh, kind of show what he's got. And if you're a New England, Minnesota, Rams, or even a Cincinnati fan, I think maybe you probably don't feel the best, but there's some pretty good teams there too. So um, that was kind of my overall thoughts. And as for the Cowboys, if you're a Cowboys fan out there, I don't hate the draft. I just hate maybe Jerry Jones and Stephen Jones right now. That's all. (laughs) And, yeah, before we throw it over to Bill for his thoughts, yeah, just to kind of piggyback on what MJ just said, I did look at um, Sports Illustrated's draft grades. I mean, they're a total crap show. You really don't know for a couple of years. But yeah. they graded the Ravens as their best team. They gave them an A+. plus. You also mentioned the Eagles. They gave them an A-plus as well. Um, and so you kind of nailed it as, as far as they're concerned. Just for others, you know, we talk about the Cowboys and the Packers a lot. Packers got an A and the Cowboys got a C+. Plus. So 
you kind of, I think you kind of nailed it. So, Bill, yep. what uh, what other thoughts did you have on the draft? I mean, it's. I feel like every year, man, it gets it gets more and more fun to watch that first round. This year, there was a lot. There was a lot of trades. There was actually players getting traded during the draft. Mm-hmm. It was a lot of fun to watch this year. Um, some teams made some really nice picks. I think the Lions did well, and then MJ said I thought the Jets did really well too. Um, something I did see that I think will be pretty interesting. So something to maybe watch going forward. The Eagles ended up getting Jordan Davis and Kobe Dean, considered the number one middle linebacker and number one defensive tackle for Georgia. Green Bay got Wyatt and Walker, um, the number twos at those positions for Georgia. So it's going to be interesting to see kind of you know how things play out over the next few years to see who ended up actually getting the better duo out mm-hmm. of Georgia. Agreed. Well, gentlemen, any anything else in the the world of sports, the world in general that that's caught your eye this past week that you do you want to mention before we uh, wrap this up? I'm not gonna lie. I got I got four pages worth of notes of the NFL draft and about a <laughs> 288 page uh, uh, draft board type scouting report um, that I that I buy every year. So that's kind of consumed my life for the last few days. So, Bill, you can you can take this one. I mean, I don't. I, I was going to ask you if you had any uh, any bets for me, Wally. Uh, I don't have anything uh, just yet. Um, yeah, nothing at the moment. I might, uh, as I dig in a little deeper, and we're recording this a day before I usually do all my recording. I might have uh, some bets for the. I'll have some bets for the UFC this uh, this coming weekend. So I don't have them right now, but I will definitely have those when the pod drops. So uh, you'll have to swing back in and uh, and listen to it. So I will have those for you when the pod drops. Sorry to let you down right now. It's okay. Well, gentlemen, I really appreciate it. Uh, we'll definitely have to have you back on, Bill. You'll definitely be back on as we uh, inch in towards the uh, the NFL season, so we can bitch about the Packers and uh, MJ. No doubt you'll be back. Hopefully, hopefully next week you'll be back for uh, at least sixty seconds. Um, but, gentlemen, I appreciate it. Thank you very much for coming on. Thank you, Wally. Thanks, Walls. All right. Have a good one, guys. Okay, everybody. Joining me now, we have the one, the only, Brad, doesn't want to be a prick, Noel, here to talk with us about the Kentucky Derby coming up this weekend. Prick, thanks for joining us. You know, uh, what, what do they say? Longtime listener, first-time contributor. Uh, the, the honor is mine, JT. Uh, one speed, as some of us know you as. <laughs> no, the, the uh, honor is, is all of mine. Uh, just a little background here. Brad uh, somehow pulled off the greatest job in the history of the world as, what were you, about 18 when my parents took you on vacation and paid you to watch me and play golf with my brother? I, I believe that's about accurate. Yeah, that was a heck of a trip to Virginia. Wild. I don't know who thought it was a good idea to leave you in charge of children, but apparently my parents did, and I somehow made it out alive. So I guess it wasn't that bad a decision. So it's it, it's it's been historical ever since. <laughs> Your older brother's now my younger brother-in-law, and uh, the rest is history, shall we say? Yep, yep. So hey, so let's get right to it. Let's get to the Kentucky Derby. We have the uh, Kentucky Derby coming up this weekend. 
And, you know, I'm sure you'll get into the betting lines and all the storylines with it. But I think the kind of the biggest thing that comes to mind for probably a lot of us casual horse racing uh, fans would be Bob Baffert. So what's the deal with him going into the weekend? Yeah, I mean, the deal is uh, he's going to be in Cali uh, sitting this one out. The The Kentucky Jockey Club suspended him for drug overages, multiple drug overages, uh, most recently that being uh, last year's winner, Medina Spirit. So he has two, or he had two Derby prospects on the trail, two that will be in the field uh, for Derby 148 that are now under the tutelage of Tim Yachtin. Uh So Tim is in a tough spot, you know. I mean, he's a former assistant of Baffert, so he obviously knows his program. Uh, and the owners, you know, trust him. And he's a, he's a really, I think, pretty much a, a stand-up guy and a good horseman. Uh, but he's in a he's in a rock and hard place because if they know fire, then well, it was Bob all the way. Uh, and if they end up, you know, taking the blanket of roses, well, it was Baffert's horse, and he just didn't screw it up. So uh, tough on him. But hey, I would I would trade places with him if I could that's for sure (laughs) yeah you never really want to be the guy that follows like the legend right you want to be the guy that follows the guy yeah exactly exactly I mean I'm a huge lover of this game I have been for you know the last 20 years of my adult life Um, you don't want these consistent black eyes and and kind of skeptical you know finishes I mean the thing that always made my head spin about the Baffert runners was they would, he trains them for early speed. So they break on or near the lead. Uh, and when, you know, I, I ran track in high school and college for a little bit, like you go out fast, you tend to get tired before the guys that didn't. And, and his horses just, they hit the top of the lane. And when you think the field should be approaching and heading them, they kicked away. They, they had a weird head carriage to begin with. It seemed like they just had an extra gear uh, and I think some of the the old uh, the old guard in Kentucky saw this this silver-haired California guy uh, come in and kind of steal their lunch, and they had enough. So no no Bobby B this year. That's uh, it's going to be a, a wild dynamic. I think it's played into you know another major major you know theme, which is there's no true standout in this field for the first time in maybe five or six years, which should lead to a super compelling betting option because uh if you have a strong opinion you're most likely going to get some pretty favorable uh some lines and odds you know that you can you can take advantage of yeah i was looking at i just was looking at the odds uh before we started talking i mean you've got epicenter at five to one then there's three three horses at six to one a horse at eight to one a couple at 14 you know three or four more at 20 a bunch more at 22 to one and you know, one at twenty five. It's I mean, it's a long time before you get to those hundred to one, you know, odds. And obviously, the, the Derby's usually got the biggest, fullest field, and you see a lot more of the long shots. But there are a lot of horses that are fifty to one and under. Where do you think the line is on what what starts to constitute a long shot? I mean, is it the guys at thirty to one and up? Is it the twenty and ones? Is it higher at fifty and one? You know, honestly, I think I think you can even drop that down. I think anything on a morning line of, of fifteen to one or more uh, has the potential to float much higher. I okay. mean, 
you know, now that with the influx of, of, of sports wagering, like we all understand odds pretty well, but it's massively different when you walk into a casino and you lay, you know, Alabama to win the national championship because you're betting a house. You're betting a bookmaker who is pretty sharp at what they're doing. Mm-hmm. In horse racing, it's paramutual wagering. Yep. So Jordan's or old walls, my bad, uh, <laughs> you know, $50 on the number two horse will ultimately affect that line or the, the odds on that horse. Uh, there's a noted gambler, uh, Mattress Mac. You know, the last couple of years, he's put two, three million dollars to win on, on, on a certain runner and it's pounded them. Like essential quality last year probably would have been six to one, maybe seven to one. And he, he dropped like a million and a half or two million bucks in a couple of, in a couple uh, trades on him, and and I think he went off at you know three to one. So it, it's a different dynamic, and and I think that this is the one one of the only races around uh, or throughout the course of the racing calendar that you can take advantage of dumb money. The house is never dumb in Vegas. There's dumb money in the Kentucky Derby, mm-hmm. and I have great examples for this. My sisters are two of the smartest people I've ever met. But when they watch the Derby, they want to have a little skin in the game. If they see a horse with a cute name or a female jockey or a backstory that NBC promotes heavily in the run-up to the race, you can get some really wild action on someone that maybe doesn't have the racing ability or credentials or even pedigree uh, to perform. You know, I mean, Rosie Napravnik... It was a noted female jockey. I mean, half of the U.S. is female. So there's only one girl rider in the race. Her horses that should be 15 to 1 go off at 8 to 1. Well, that's a massive overlay uh, and and an opportunity to maybe draw, not necessarily draw a line through it, but take, take note of that betting action and see if, you know, Uncle Chuck or, you know, different weird names, you know, they tend to grab the, the core, uh, not necessarily core, but like the the non racing fans' attention. Yeah, uh, and they and they can be overbet, and and you know it's not great value at all. Yep. And and while we're talking lines, do you think there? And because of the paramutual aspect, which is a good point, which I always forget until I make the bet, and then I have to remember I can't get my pay. I don't know what my payout is until after the bet finishes. Right. Do you right. think there's a good a good time to make your bets or are you just kind of because of the paramutual aspect and people just kind of sending them in wildfire, you know, I'm sure there's people who wake up, you know, Saturday, the Kentucky Derby and they fire in their whole line for the day. And then there's people who do it, you know, by race and there's people who do it at the last second. Do you think there's a best time that you can kind of, kind of work the, work the system a little bit, or are you just kind of hitting and hoping? Yeah, I don't think there is optimal timing. I mean, I would definitely stress if you're on an ADW and that's like an advanced deposit wagering site like a Twin Spires or a TBG or a Naira Bets. I mean, there's there's a handful of them uh, in states where this is allowed. You know, um, they tend to have not the greatest uh, computer servers. And when there's heavy, heavy traffic, like 10 minutes to post and, and approaching, you know, the 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 bell like you might not even get it in i wouldn't wait that long i would probably you know you'd like to see them in the paddock 
because it's such a frenzy at Churchill that day. There's so much commotion um, that if, if the horse loses, it's cool. I mean, Baffert had not only the winner last year, Medina Spirit, he had another horse that completely lost it, uh, also contributing to the what was he on, you know, dynamic. Uh, flipped a, flipped over in the paddock and by veterinarian rules, you know, was not allowed to even enter the starting gate mm-hmm. uh, because he, you know, landed on his back and whatnot. So you, you do kind of want to see the reaction to the, the absolute swarm of people because, Jordan, this is like um, this is like Super Bowl of yep. horse racing. And I mean in the capacity of you go to the Super Bowl and you, maybe 20% of the crowd is for either one of the two teams that are on the field. The rest are corporate. Uh, you know, it's a huge hospitality. It's a place to be. It's a seat. It's a social scene. It's a select, you know, there's a status thing about going to the Super Bowl, much like the, the, the Kentucky Derby is. So these people don't know how to act around horses. You don't, you know, it, it, they, they are flight or fright animals so uh, you know a lot of commotion can certainly set you know weaker minded individuals into they've already run their race you'll you'll see it with a, a big heavy sweat on their front shoulders the kidney sweat is a bad uh thing to see that's like the white froth that you'll you, you might see on their reins or mm-hmm. in their hindquarters like between their back legs not a great look uh, because it just means they're expending energy before they need to go run a mile and a quarter and beat 19 other horses. Yep. So before we get to making your your picks here, while we're talking about like the like going to the Derby and the people there, have you been to the Kentucky Derby? I have. Uh, it was a lot of fun. Uh, actually, the day, the weekend that we went, the the Oaks Day, which is the the day. Per, proceeding so a lot of silly races uh you wear a lot of pink uh, a lot of breast cancer awareness stuff that was a gorgeous day the day the actual derby day came up uh pretty sloppy so the the heavens opened up at maybe four o'clock for a six o'clock post uh it was it was a good thing that we had box seats you know behind glass and, and not out in the elements uh but it is absolute mayhem there uh for that entire weekend a uh, lot of fun. It was one of those things that I'm glad I did it. I've, but I, I like the, the racing all day too much to deal with that kind of mayhem. So, mm-hmm. you know, a, a big screen TV and my own mint jollops and hot browns that you make at home might be the, the more optimal way to go. Bucket, you know, bucket list for sure, but I don't need to go every year. That's for uh, that's for sure. Yeah, I mean, the way TV is anymore, there's, there's a lot of sporting events that it's cool to go to like once – or, you know, go to a, a football, a college football game once a year or a college basketball game once a year. But, like, it's more fun to sit at home in your, your leather recliner chair and you got your 50, 60, 70-inch TV. And, like you said, you make your own drinks and they aren't, you know, $17 a pop. And it, it feels a little better at the end of the day. Yeah, I mean, the lines are – you know, everything is slower. Uh, you don't see a lot of the, the, the horses. Like, it's not a regular race day where you can make your way from your seat down to the paddock, watch them. You know, get saddled, watch them, you know, enter the track and then walk up to a teller or, or make your wagers. Like it's, it's a process. So, you know, my, my horse racing buddies, our crew, you know, we did Del Mar last year for the Breeders' Cup. That, that is complete horse racing community. So they kind of all get it. Um, 
if if you really want to see you know two days of you know, comparable cards um you know it's the world championships of horse racing that's that's where you want to go uh, but the derby is a it, it it's cool you, you, everyone should see it once preakness is actually cooler i, I think preakness is phenomenal in baltimore is that the hot take? Is that your hot take right here, that the Preakness is a better event than the Derby? I, I absolutely contend that. No, no question. I mean, the track isn't Churchill because it doesn't have the Twin Spires. It doesn't have the history. Uh, but Baltimore is a cooler town than, than Louisville. Uh, Louisville's fine, but you know, there's, it's, you, there's not nearly the infrastructure to hold the, the, the massive amount of people mm-hmm. that are coming in. So, you know, hotels, Airbnbs, they're all jacked to ridiculous rates. I mean, it's almost like Augusta, Georgia for the Masters. Like, yeah. it, 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 you might be staying a, an hour away and still dropping 700 bucks on a, you know, Crown Plaza suite room. Like, Yeah, I, I went we, to... What are we doing here? I went to the Masters, not to get too far off topic, but I went to the Masters like eight years ago. Stayed at a Knights Inn an hour and a half away, and it was like 250 bucks a night. So, yeah. Yeah, um, and, I mean, just getting to and from the track is a nightmare. Like, mm-hmm. and they it's they've been through it. They're through it every year. Like, you'd think they'd have a better system. But <laughs> it's, uh, you just you know go plan to just be kind of miserable. Hopefully, the weather you know cooperates because then it's like a, a double a double whammy. But you know, it's something to see. That that's for sure. Yep. And, and I honestly think they're pushed for celebrity interaction. You know, the Brady's of the world and. Uh, Gronk and whatnot. Like NBC's doing the right thing by incorporating Hollywood and uh, and, and sports stars to to attend, but it, it does it does draw a different crowd to that you know complete atmosphere. Mm-hmm. So so the Derby Day itself, first race. Uh, I'm looking at the schedule here. It, it's uh, 10:30 post time. A.M. Yeah, it's a long card. So and, I mean, it's a great card. That's the thing. Like, if you're really into betting multi-race wagers, pick threes, pick fours, pick fives, that's where you have to find the winner in every race uh, of that sequence. Like, there, there's a – the Derby, yeah, if you just want to lay 100 bucks to win on a, on a horse, sure. You know, you know, you, you stand by that opinion, but uh, there's, there's a lot of ways to skin the cat when it comes to value. Uh and the in the in the card leading up to it is typically one of the one of the stronger ones that you'll see you know throughout, and they'll do the same at Preakness and Belmont. Like the, all the Triple Crown dates are uh, are loaded cards with a lot of stakes races, uh, so you'll see various distances on both surfaces, dirt and turf, uh, both sexes, you know, fillies and and colts, uh, older and three year olds. Like that, you and it's essentially like a Breeders' Cup prep. You know, early in the year. Mm-hmm. So I'm taking it. You you you're ready to go at 10:30. You've got your mint julep. You're yeah. you've got that mixed up, and you're locked in from 10:30 all the way. And I always think the kind of the craziest thing about the Kentucky Derby is they run two races after it. Right, right, and that's just to let the the folks that came for the Derby spill out a little bit. Like that's almost traffic control. Mm-hmm. Is leave like the degenerates that want to hang <laughs> and, and you know that lost their shirt in the in the big one like. We call them. We call those the get out races. Like get out while you're either still, you know, have a home to come home to, or <laughs> you know, um, or can still make your bank. Because you know? <laughs> I've, I've I've seen that too, where it's it's the allowance race where you parlay maybe 
a modest derby victory into and you, it's almost like a double down effect. And, yep. then, and then Louisville gets real cool when you're walking around with, you know, fifteen stacks in your in your wallet. Yeah, I was gonna say that probably goes a long way in Louisville, Kentucky. <laughs> right. You gotta pick the right club though, because you know, some are for each persuasion, let's put it that way. And I found myself <laughs> into both situations. <laughs> so Let's get to the picks part. Who do you like yeah. in the Derby itself? We'll start there. Do you, do you okay. got a do you got a uh, a favorite you're going with, or you know an exacta box or anything like that that you're kind of leaning on? I know you in our talks, you said you were kind of wait you were hoping uh, to talk to me after they list the uh, I, I forget what you said. Your something was coming out Tuesday, so I'll kind of let you go yep. with it. Yeah. Okay. So you made a good point earlier about the odds you were looking at. So this is just the assumption of the the book, you know, the, the morning line maker at Churchill. And they're not necessarily saying that Epicenter or Zandon uh, should be or, you know, has, has the value of four to one or five to one. What they're saying is that's what they're anticipating the public to bet them down to mm-hmm. when the race goes off. It's their best guess at what, where the money will all fall, where the chips will fall when all the money's, you know, invested in, in those opinions. Um, so what we're waiting for on Tuesday is the post position draw. And it's very important, especially in a race where there isn't just, you know, one speed horse who, you know, when the gates open, is going to run right to the front. Like there's two or three that are front running. Like the only times they've ever won a race is when they've, been in front and no one ever passed them um and and that's why the the post position draw matters so much because in a field of 20 uh if you look at and i know churchill got this new you know it's a it was like a million dollar starting gate they they had to pre-order it from australia they used to have an auxiliary gate so one through 15 was one gate and then you'd see some tires and like a connector piece almost like a, a a train connection. And then there, the other five horses were on the outside of them. Well, it left like a, a four foot gap. And when 20 horses, uh, make that cavalry charge after the gates open, 15 and 16 always just slammed right into each other. 15 wanted to get away from the other 14 inside of it. And 16 didn't want to be, you know, dealing with 17, 18, 19 and 20 in the outer rail. So there was always like a massive collision. Now they have a continuous gate, one through 20. It doesn't take away from the issue that when they start in the chute, so a mile and a quarter race at Churchill, uh, they, they start before the, like the main grandstand. They run by, you know, all of the spectators on the right. They pass the start finish line or, you know, the finish line, I should say. Yep. And then they do a complete lap from there. So it's a, it's essentially it's a quarter mile straight run to the first turn. The problem is, is that they start before the turn for home. So one and two, when you look at the gate, they if they ran straight, they'd run into the inner rail for the the home stretch. Okay, like they have to come out. They have to turn a little bit right. They have to veer a little bit right. And twenty doesn't want to be hung twenty wide. You know, going so they're pushing to turn. get in as the guys who are actually on the inside are pushing to get out. Yeah, you, you said it perfectly. And and so that's where when you when you see where the speed horses fall in the lineup, it really matters. Like if if 
let's say okay so one of the main horses that actually just got re-entered the the, the owners are like 90 years old none of them neither of them they've been in the game a long time they've never had a derby entrant the the trainer didn't want to enter the, the horse his name is classic causeway he had a lot of pub in like january and into early february but he's a front runner and then he, he laid two eggs in his last two preps uh took to the lead someone came up to him and he just shit the bed, you know shit the bed just stopped running the the owners own the horse they have the final say they're in the kentucky derby uh, if that horse draws number 20, you know he's going to cut off half the field trying to get down to the inside going into that first turn left, you know, heading to the backstretch. Um, and, and, you know, conversely, if they're in one, you know they're going to gun and cut off two, three, four, and five. So it's where I say, like, you know, one of the – I mean, there is enough technology where you can watch all these replays. I don't expect – you know, 99% of the listening audience to do that. Um, but you'll see some of the commentary going in where that really matters. I mean, mm-hmm. ultimately, you would love to be drawn between four and eh, 18. I mean, you can win from the outside, but the only ones that have ever really won from 17, 18, 19, 20, have been, no one's ever won from 17 or number one. Those are the two kind of we're waiting for history there. And this is number 148. Now, granted, they didn't have 20 horses for much of those, but you get my point. Um, there's only been one winner from 20. So it, it can happen if they're just a absolute superstar. But likely you want to be kind of in the belly of the field, but also have positional speed. If you're just one of those take back, uh, you got to pass 19 horses in traffic, you know, mud in your face, bobbing and weaving. It's not easy. You know, one horse slows down in front of you and your race is over. Like you can't like regain your footing and and get back to the, you know, the the miles per hour you were going. They're going 30 miles an hour. If you slam on the brakes, now you're at 18. Now you got to restart that engine. Mm -hmm. Your race is done. So that's why I say that the draw is very, very important. When you get to the horses that have early positional speed, number one and two, um, well, Classic Causeway is certainly one of them. So wherever he draws, you, you'd you like to be kind of outside of him. That would be a perfect spot because you can just kind of follow his flank. You know, if, if you're one of those stalker types, they call him speed, stalker, you know, mid-pack, uh, closer, and then deep closer. Like that's like where they typically run throughout the running of a race. The deep closers are up against it in a 20-horse field. Always have been, always will be. And that's why you've seen a lot, you know, the, I think the last six winners uh, had the lead turning for home, you know, as they hit the home stretch. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, it, half of them were Bafferts, and maybe they had juice, <laughs> and they just didn't get tired. You know, the afterburners kicked in, there's your EPO shot, and bam, wham, bam. Um, a lot of people think that, myself included, but... Hey, he's not here. Uh, but here's the other dynamic about Baffert is in California, they typically train their horses to break very, very, very fast. America versus Australia versus Europe, uh, we all tend to train our horses to break fast. In California, it's like, you know, super speed. So Messier and, and Taba is how you pronounce it, T I A T. 
A-I-B-A. Mm-hmm. These are both former Baffert horses. Um, there's another one that Doug O'Neill has that I think is just, you know, in it, in it for show. I, I don't think there's any chance. Uh, Happy Jack. He got his doors blown off by them um, at the Santa Anita Derby. He's won it before. I'm, I'm not saying he can't, but I, I, I only like Happy Jack if, it, if there's an absolute deluge and the, and the track is, you know, mud or slop. Uh, and that's because of his pedigree. But I, I would think you're looking for someone that's going to be in the top 10 of runners going into that first turn, just because you don't have so much to overcome. Um, the other dynamics I would talk about as far as individual uh, horses or connections, Epicenter is going to be one of the two, two you know, top three picks, I would think, when the, when the gates open. He's essentially you know a lot of people's favorite right now his trainer steve asmussen uh, a texas guy he's the all-time winningest trainer in north america he set that record last summer at saratoga um very accomplished horseman he's never won the derby so it's a big can you do it now he's had some really really good horses that didn't ever win the derby curlin um yeah, he took over Rachel Alexander, even though she won the Oaks. You know, he's he's had superstars in his barn. Uh, he had Gunrunner, who is the dad of some of these, the sire. So that's the storyline. Zandon, uh, an up and comer. Chad Brown was an assistant to Bobby Frankel uh, for the ladies on the podcast. That's Bethany Frankel's deceased father. Uh, she didn't like him because he spent all, his entire life at the track, but. You know, that's what horse people do. So whatever. Keep that drama aside. Chad Brown, phenomenal trainer, but most known for his turf pedigree. This is a mile and a, and a quarter on the dirt. But Zandon, I mean, he's won the Preakness. He, he, he gets a lot of really good stock in his barn. So Zandon, an up-and-comer, a late bloomer. But the, the way he won the bluegrass, he's going to – I mean, you watch it. He's athletic. He bobbed and weaved through traffic, and he beat 13 other horses – Doing it again and getting that same kind of racing luck of, you know, hitting the hole at the right time and not losing any momentum. We'll see. Um, those are probably the top four, I would think. Zandon, Epicenter, Messier, and, and Taba. Yeah, that's uh, what I'm seeing on the projected odds. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in all Taba scares the shit out of me, and here's why. He's only had two career races. Um, one was against a seven horse field in, uh, Santa Anita, made in special weight. Those are for horses that have never won a race. Then he comes back in the Santa Anita Derby in a second race. And that was like a sprint. So he only went six furlongs. So furlongs an eighth of a mile. Uh, so six eighths of a mile. Now we're going a mile and a quarter, you know, it's essentially, you know, getting close to double, yep. uh, the, the distance. Now he handled Santa Anita fine, but. The California tracks tend to be very speed favoring um, and not as tiring. Let's say not maybe not as deep of dirt, so maybe he just didn't didn't get tired. But he looked like an absolute freak. Uh, he had a pretty cruddy workout the other day. They just said he looked asleep. Uh, was training you know in tandem with like a maiden claimer who hasn't done much obviously if he's got that status. Um, What's so a maiden a claimer of, like, for us non? Yeah, so a horse, just to keep American racing, and it's all around the world, but one of the designations for a race, when you see CLM, it means that every horse in that 
in that race is up for sale, essentially. There's still a purse, but like to enter your horse, you have to put them up for whatever that claiming tag is. It could be a hundred thousand, it could be five thousand. You know, the five thousand dollar claimers, obviously we're talking about a horse that kind of the, the story's already written about. Like mm-hmm. you're not gonna turn them into Sea Biscuit. Um Sea Biscuit was a claiming horse, but by the way uh and then went on you know it's, it's super rare normally you just know this horse is slow <laughs> um so for him to be kind of ding donging with this claimer did not set the best kind of uh you know opinion of that recent workout but it was six furlongs uh slow and steady your absolute garden variety bob baffert workout it's not about Baffert's horse anymore. It's Timmy Dean's. But the point is, is but like, everybody knows uh, it's still Bob Baffert's horse. We started. We started with that premise, right? Like, yeah, he's he's in the stands with binoculars. I, I, I mean, Tim used to work for Bob. If you don't think Bob has, you know, his name's not on it, and he ain't getting the the, the, the trainer's cut of the winner's purse. But if you don't think he has a, a hand in this. You know, regimen, you're crazy. Will Bob Baffert be in the stands with a fake no, mustache? Hell no. No, no way. The, the, <laughs> Kentucky, the, the, the old boys in Kentucky are fed up with that guy. He stole their lunch money. I said it earlier. Like, three times in a row. Like, I mean, Kentucky's, like, half of their GDP, I think, is like horse racing. It's ridiculous. <laughs> like, with all the breeding sheds and farms, like, if you drive around, if you drive from Louisville to Lexington, it's like, they call it the Bourbon Trail. It's an awesome drive. It's gorgeous. And, you know, some great American whiskey, essentially. Um, like, all you see is horse farms. Like, gotcha. that is their lifeblood. So, for them to kind of get disrupted by this, I mean, he was Arizona. He was training quarter horses in Arizona, like when he started his career. Like he's always kind of had like a little bit of cloud of suspicion over him. Mm-hmm. And recently, it just looks like he feels fucking bulletproof. <laughs> They're pissed. So I don't think I don't think he'll be in Kentucky. Let's put it that way. Gotcha. All right, I'm gonna nail you down here on two things. Yeah. First, bourbon to go in the mint julep. What's what's the what's the go to? I mean, if you're going to stick to the roots of Kentucky, I mean, you, you, I'm kind of an old soul. I, I don't, I don't, I hate the mint julep, by the way. I think it's a garbage drink. <laughs> um, but, you know, hey, if, if you're going to go hard, go hard. Wild turkey, you know, let, let's, let's play ball. Okay. I love it. Love it. Um, but, I mean, there's so many good ones. Yeah. Like, you know, I, 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 I gave up the brown stuff. A decade ago, <laughs> I wasn't my best uh, prick. Let's put it that way. <laughs> oh God! <laughs> All right, but so yeah, so um, the next thing I'm nailing you down on, uh-huh. you got to pick one horse. I know you don't have Ooh. you know. All the info you want, but I- I'm yeah. nailing you down. Give me one pick to win the Derby. I, you know what I. I honestly think so. Brad Cox is a noted trainer. He's a Kentucky boy. Um, very, very capable. Has decent stock. I don't love him. Cyberknife is a name that I would keep my eye on. He's got Florent Giroux, a French, now American jockey, uh, super capable. He won the Arkansas Derby out at Oakland. Um, I'm, I'm not impressed with the field he beat. I didn't think his like speed figure came back all that impressive. Um, which almost makes me think that 
Tawny Port might have like the upset lurking. Ran recently at Lexington, uh, at Keeneland, which is in Lexington. That I mean, I, I think don't don't dismiss the Cox. Here's what I would say: don't play a win bet, or I mean, do, but don't use that as your entire bankroll. Mm-hmm. Text four of your buddies. Pull, you know, each of you put. If you're going to wager a hundred bucks, put fifty to win on your selection, and then take the other fifty, pull it together, and play a couple different options. And I would, I wouldn't just stick with win bets. I would play exactas, where you have two strong opinions coming in first, and then five coming in second, and play like a ten dollar exacto. That might cost a hundred bucks, hundred and fifty bucks. You can go as deep as a trifecta. You know, where it's first, second, and third, where you go, you don't have to box them because a box means any one of the horses you pick can come in that in first, second, or third. Don't necessarily do that. You can you can put one on top. That's you know single Tava if you just think it's still Baffert and I'm I'm going to ride him until he's completely out of the game, mm-hmm. and then put five underneath of that. You know, that's where I think a lot of the value will come from, and that's where I think. This year specifically, there's so much middle ground. Like I, I honestly think there's going to be six horses that are twelve to one or less, which is great. But like last year, Mandaloon was twenty-seven to one coming in second, and Medina Spirit was twelve to one. If you get a twelve to one over a twenty-seven to one, and you have a ten-dollar exact on it, that could pay six grand. Yeah, you know. I mean, whereas. The only way you could get that with a win bet is bet the sixty, you know, a fifty to one shot at a hundred bucks. Like, I don't know if that's the right math, but whatever. Someone fact check me later. But my point is, is it's better as a pool. Give yourself multiple options, multiple bets, um, and kind of spread out. There's there's some names I loved underneath. Tawny Port would be one. I really okay, okay, Brad. Okay, you you got me again though. You got you got all the good info, but I. I'm nailing you down to this one. Give me a winner. Crown Pride. Crown Pride is the it's winner. The first Japanese. Uh, it's the first international horse to win the Kentucky Derby. Okay, I didn't want to cut you off too bad for because you're giving good info, but you were uh, you were weaseling your way out of giving me a uh, a winner there. Well, so I had to yeah, nail you I mean, to Tate, it. Tate going to win the fucking race, but Crown Pride could be right there and lose in, like in a in a photo, and and I'll I will feel vindicated that. He was twenty nine to one, and Taba was five to one. I just nailed you down to a winner, and two seconds later, you spun off it and gave me another name. I, I, from the point I asked you to give me one winner, you yeah, gave me five Pride. names. I just Crown want to point that out. <laughs> Here's why: the Japanese have taken over horse racing. Uh, they're dominating in our American sales. It, in the Breeders' Cup, where we were at Del Mar in San Diego, they won two races for the first time. They won four in Saudi Arabia, and they won five on Dubai World Cup night. I mean, these are some of the richest races in the world. Uh, they have the stock. This horse won the UAE Derby, which is uh, the the, or the Derby prep on, on Dubai World Cup day. Um, overcame a very wide trip in a blisteringly hot pace. So was attentive near the lead, like was up there running with the front runners. And very fast early fractions went wider than all of them, and kicked away and won by almost three lengths. So, if there's going to be the perfect storm of a non-American horse to win the Kentucky Derby, uh, this is the year to do it. I, I, I think 
the connections are are sound. The pedigree, I'm not so sure about, but uh, Crown Pride, you, you heard it here, ladies and gentlemen. You heard it here first. Crown Pride, prick. Anything else to add, non derby related? While I've got you, or was that uh, was that all you had for us here today? Well, the seven year old baseball team lost a heartbreaker six <laughs> to five today. You know, Izzy struck out with the bases loaded, but she's the, about as cute of a second baseman as you're going to find. She might weigh <laughs> 39 pounds. Um, not the strongest stick, but she puts bat on ball. But, uh, yep, the Blue Snakes went down in a ball of flames. And, well, we uh, had ice cream. And you are the head coach of the Blue Snakes, if oh, I'm not mistaken, you know, correct? I, I, I'm the. I don't know if I'm lasso, but I'm pretty damn positive with these kids. What uh, before I let you go? What's your What's your current? Do you have a record with the Blue Snakes this year? Or yeah, we're uh, we're three and one. Yeah, that was to keep the the, the record perfect. Ooh, so real heartbreaker, real heartbreaker. Yeah, we'd played this team before, and I didn't pitch. You know, our two studs. Because we kind of stomped them, uh, and boy, did they! Uh, we didn't see those two kids. They might play on the travel team because we we had trouble uh, getting runners aboard. Let's put it that way. That's what you get for trying to be nice about it. <laughs> well, prick no. man, I really appreciate it. Well, uh, we might have to dial you back in for uh, for the rest of the triple crown later in the summer. But thanks so much for coming on and. Uh, Old Walt's house appreciates all the uh, all the good info from you. I'll tell you what, everyone should throw their own derby party. It's a heck of a it's a heck of a time. Uh, make it make your own tradition. Grow the game, as we say, <laughs> fourteen clubs. Grow the game. Loved it, loved it, Walt. Awesome, thanks, Prick. Can't wait to see you, buddy. All right, let's do a, a Flyers update and a little golf update here in the same segment. First, let's uh, let's go to Flyers. We uh, we came out of the podcast last week thinking we might be talking about a winning streak. Ended uh, well when we left it on the podcast last week. We had two one back to back games, two in a row. That all came to a uh, a crashing crashing halt against the Blackhawks on Monday. A three to one loss to the lowly Chicago Blackhawks. One of the only other teams with a record as poor as the Flyers this year, and uh, it was just uh, an ugly game from start to finish. I watched pretty much all of it, I think. Not not great viewing material. And then uh, in typical Flyers fashion for how it's been this year, there was a, a 4-0 loss to the Jets on Wednesday and a 4-2 loss to the Senators on Friday. Wrapping up the season on a three-game losing streak, just uh, seems appropriate for this year. You know, you do remember there were multiple double-digit game losing streaks this year. So I will say, I did enjoy my first year as a hockey fan and a Flyers fan in particular. I enjoyed the first half of the year a lot more. Like October, up until about New Year, the Flyers were doing okay and like the games were competitive and it felt like they had a chance. And like, I really enjoyed that. This last half of the year, especially the last couple months, it got to be a little bit of a drag, not going to lie to you. But I'm ready. I'm ready to start anew next year. I'll be back. This wasn't a one-year experiment. The Flyers fan in me lives. The fire burns. We'll be back next year to, uh, to see if they can put a better product out on the ice. In golf, John Rahm won the, uh, the Mexico Open by one shot. 
He shot rounds of uh, Thursday 64, Friday 66, Saturday 68, and a Sunday 69. Nice. To get this one done and, and pick up a win. This was a pretty weak field. I didn't really watch much of this golf. Not a whole lot interesting. I think one of the only other big names up near the top was Tony uh, Tony Finau. So uh, not much to add there. John Rahm, do you do guys say this about John Rahm? You know, good player, goes and wins an event, he probably should have won. Like, there, there's something to be said about that, especially in golf. Like, it's hard to win golf tournaments. And when you're favored to win one, and you go out and do exactly what you're favored to do and what you're, you know, supposed to do, as I air quote here, that's a, that's a good thing. So, good win for Rom. Any win's a good win. Wells Fargo, next week, that should be a, a pretty good turnout, I believe. And then we got the PGA Championships just a couple weeks off, so... We will be ramping back up the golf coverage here in the next coming weeks. Busy week in the, the fight game this week. Had a couple of uh, couple of boxing matches on Saturday. We're going to start with Katie Taylor and Amanda Serrano. Uh, a woman's fight that headlined the Madison Square Garden for the first time. And I'll admit, I'll admit I was very skeptical about this. I mean, they were building this up. Biggest fight in women's boxing history. This is a real thing. Yeah, I mean, they were giving you the absolute full court press on promoting this thing. And I kind of took it as like, oh, it's the boy who cries wolf. Like, I've heard him tell me how awesome, you know, this thing is or that thing is with women's boxing. And then you watch it and the fights are okay at best. I was wrong. I I, I kind of thought this would be another snoozer. This was a good fight. I caught the last uh, five rounds, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Good fight. Really good fight. Really entertaining. I didn't see the first five rounds, so I'm going to hold back a little bit of opinion on, I mean, you're seeing a lot of people say fight of the year contender, one of the best fights ever. Watching the last five rounds, fight of the year contender, I'm all for that. F one of the best fights of all time. May maybe pump the brakes just a bit, but it was a great entertaining fight. And I think it was a good step for women's boxing. It's funny how we talk about women's boxing and it's, you know, blah, blah, blah. But women's UFC, because they do everything exactly the same and they just put them right in the cards and it's not, it just, it makes it feel normal. They're just as good as anything. So I thought it was a good fight, lived up to the hype. Like I say, I, I, I thought it had the boy who cries wolf kind of mentality coming into it, but I enjoyed what I saw. I know there was a little controversy on it. Katie Taylor won by split decision. Uh, 94, 96, 96, 94, and then 97, 93. So people saying that 97, 93 for Taylor was a little wide. Um, a lot of the Twitter sphere seemed to like the 94, 96 in favor of Serrano. Um, like I said, I just watched the last five rounds, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, and I had all those rounds for Katie Taylor. I guess uh, the fifth round was a really big round for Amanda Serrano. So I came in kind of right after that with, you know, a clear vision. That can be something that happens in boxing is you see a big round and you want to, like, expand that influence out a little bit more. You got to really, I mean, boxing is judged and UFC is the same way. One round at a time. You know, that round happens and then you put it away. Like, it doesn't matter if that person sucked in that round. You can't, like, that doesn't carry on. So good fight, fun fight. Uh Liam Smith and Jesse Vargas on the undercard was fun, so that was that was a lot of fun watching that one. And that led into uh, Shakur Stevenson and Oscar Valdez. They had Keyshawn Davis on right before him. That kid looks like a, a star in the making. Um, and so Shakur Stevenson, Oscar Valdez. I had told you guys look for a late uh, late stoppage by Shakur. Didn't get that. 
He was dominant, though. He wins by unanimous decision. Scores of uh, 118, 109, 117, 110, and 118-109. I had it 119, 108. Uh, I didn't. I only scored one round for Valdez. I did have a couple rounds that I, I marked as a questionable, the fourth and fifth as well. Um, so my my card could have swung a little bit to that 117, 110. So it, it just was Shakur's on a different level than Valdez. Valdez had his moments where he tried to press Shakur and kind of put some pressure on him and kind of bring the fight to him. But Shakur's just so good. Every punch was more effective. I, I, he's such an economical fighter. Like his punches are perfectly placed. He doesn't throw more than he has to. He's very effective with what he does throw. He's. I think the the you know the ceiling is the roof for for Shakur. Um, no, but I think he's got an unlimited potential and could be a really really special fighter. Uh, I was a little disappointed that he kind of let his foot off the gas late. Like I told you, I thought I think last week I said look for ten to twelve for stoppage, maybe sprinkle some of that. I thought, you know, coming into those rounds, I'm like, everything was kind of going just about how I thought it was. And I thought he'd kind of step on a little bit more. Um, and he didn't. And that's probably a credit to, you know, Valdez's power. I mean, he probably was being a little respectful of that. So um, after the fight, he proposed in the ring. Apparently that's some famous uh, female rapper that he proposed to. Um, and, and looking at around the 130 pound division, I don't think there's a lot for him there. I think he's at 135 a whole heck of a lot sooner than not. Uh, there's a lot more going on there for him to him to fight. So um, moving forward to some previews, uh, fun weekend coming up. We have UFC 274 and then Canelo Alvarez jumping up to light heavyweight to face uh, the title holder, one of the title holders there, Dimitri Bevel. So let's start with UFC 274. Let's start with my brother's picks. Remember, the worst, uh, you know, fighting sports gambler picker ever. He uh, he's eight and one since the pod has begun. So this week, he's uh, he's going with the following picks. You know, fade fade at your own risk. Apparently, in the Donald Cerrone and Joe Lazoon fight, he takes Joe Lazoon with Mauricio Rua and Ovince Saint Pro. He goes Saint Pro. Tony Chandler, or sorry, Tony Ferguson and Michael Chandler, my my apologies there. He's taking Tony Ferguson. Beware, he loves Tony Ferguson, so we'll circle back there. Uh, Thug, Thug Rose Namajunas versus Carla Esparza. He likes Rose Namajunas. And in the main event, Charles Oliveira versus Justin Gaethje. He's going with Charles Oliveira. Uh, just a couple of, uh, just one difference for me, really. Um, I like Michael Chandler over Tony Ferguson. Both of those guys need a win really bad. I just think Tony Ferguson shot. But the, I, I guess the catch is you just have to outlast Michael Chandler's first three minutes, and then you can kind of get to him. But I, I'm thinking Michael Chandler there, so I'm going to break there. Um, I'm good with Lazoon. Everybody beats Donald Cerrone anymore. I know nothing about the light heavyweight Mauricio Rua and Ovince St. Preux, so I, no idea. I like Thug Rose to win. And I think Charles Oliveira is just, he's just better than Justin Gaethje. I like Gaethje. I'll be rooting for Gaethje, but my money would go on Oliveira there. So that's a fun card, man. Like Cerrone's in fun fights. I don't know about, like I said, the two light heavyweights, Mauricio Rua and Ovin Sepru. But Tony Ferguson and Michael Chandler, that fight should be great. Michael Chandler fights are always fun. Uh, Doug Rose and Carl Esparza, that's a good fight in the co-main. 
And then, very interested to see if Gaethje can do anything against Oliveira. I mean, some people have had some luck against Oliveira, but he bounces back. His wrestling's so good. His jiu-jitsu, he's a good striker. You know, Gaethje's a hell of a striker. He's got a wrestling pedigree, but he doesn't really go to it that much. So, I think that's a fun card. This is definitely a two-TV night in, in, old, Wall, in old Wall's literal house. Um, so, that they'll be fired up. Uh, and then Canelo and Dimitri Bebel on DAZN. That one's actually a DAZN pay-per-view. So, I am very, very interested in this one. I think this is probably Canelo's biggest test probably since he fought... Probably since he fought Triple G back in 2018. Um, Bevel is a good light heavyweight. He's been inactive, but he is he, he's he's a good boxer, and that can kind of trouble Canelo a little bit. If you look back to his history, it's been a while since he's fought like a good pure boxer like him. I mean, you have to go almost way back to Arasani Lara, but he he's got a he's got good power. He's his footwork. It's this fight has a chance to get a little, a little ugly, and I would look for Bevel to have a lot of success early. I think Canelo starts to figure him out, you know, round three, round four, and really starts to come on late. I don't think Canelo stops him. I think this one goes the distance with Canelo winning a close but probably relatively clear decision. Could be a little shenanigans in there, but. I think he wins, and that sets us up with the uh, the Triple G trilogy in the fall. I uh, don't have a lot of hope for Triple G in that. I would love to see it, but and then, you know, if Canelo gets through these two, uh, I think it's right back to light heavyweight for him to try and unify. So fun, uh, fun weekend of fights upcoming, and can't wait to uh, talk about that next week and recap those. Time for some passing thoughts, everybody. So we're going to start with some movies and TV here. Saw, caught, caught a, a good portion of Con Air the other day. Con Air is just a fun movie, man. Nick Cage, all jacked up, long hair, Cameron Poe, his, some kind of southern drawl he's working with. Great, great cast. Dave Chappelle, John Malkovich is in it. Uh, just, just a bunch of uh, good characters. Fun movie. Really enjoyed watching that the other night. Uh, I don't think that's winning any awards for, you know, the Academy Awards, but those guys are losers anyway. They don't ever recognize fun movies, so real fun movie. Also, watch uh, watched Top Gun. How good is Top Gun? Like, Top Gun is such a great movie. Just the start of Top Gun, you know, that, that slow theme is kind of playing. They're getting the aircraft carrier ready, and then bam! Right in the danger zone as that plane takes off. You know, Talk to Me Goose, Negative Ghost Rider, Pattern is Full. Just a great movie. Loved watching that. Uh, watched The Wire. I started watching The Wire. Finished season one. What a great first season that was. I'm a couple episodes into season two. A little slow yet, but season one was so awesome. They kind of got to reset everything and kind of build it back up. Really enjoying that show. Finally saw the end of the new Spider-Man movie. Uh, spoiler alert, spoiler alert coming here. Really cool seeing all three Spider-Mans in it. All the old villains coming back, mixing with the new. R- really cool. Ending's a little bit of a tearjerker. Not going to lie to you. Ending is a little bit of a tearjerker. So that was kind of the, the movies and TV shows I've caught. Still going on the, the Lakers series on, on HBO. That's a fun one. Winning time. Really fun show there. I really have enjoyed watching that one as well. So... 
Um, while we're kind of talking a couple of things, a couple of movies, you know, Top Gun was an 80s movie. Listen to, I got a, I kind of got like an 80s playlist going when I was lifting at the gym the other day. God damn, that's some good, 80s music fucks, man. Like, it just slaps. Was, uh, you know, I know the Rocky theme was kind of the first one to start it. Rocky theme from the 70s, but boils over into the 80s with a couple of the movies. Uh, also, the Rocky Four soundtrack, there isn't a, a better workout music than the Rocky Four soundtrack, period. You also I caught some good ones like You're the Best Around, you know, from the Karate Kid, Come On, Feel the Noise by Quiet Riot, and one of my personal favorites, Cult of Personality by Living Color. Just great music, really gets the blood pumping. Loved it. Had a great workout, great workout. Uh, and I guess while we're talking movies, kind of still, you know, and, and we're like switched over to music there, but movies and TV show stuff, the Netflix app on your phone is so much better than every other app, like HBO Max, kind of trashy, uh, the Amazon Prime one's okay, like, why didn't they just find out what Netflix did and do that? Because the Netflix one works so good. You want to download a show? Perfect. Boom, boom, done, download it. You want to play it while you're offline? Perfect. Works without a charm. All the other ones kind of get glitchy. Uh, saw this, that a, uh, a couple moved into a house on a golf course. I believe this was in the Boston area and had some golf balls hit into their backyard. So they sued the golf course and won nearly $5 million. $5 million. That's incredible. They've been there for five years. So if you say there's a hundred and you know five months, thirty days in a month, that's hundred and fifty days times five years. That's seven hundred and fifty days, right? Am I doing my math correct? Five, five months times thirty days, hundred and fifty times five years is seven hundred and fifty balls. So less than a ball a day, and you soon get five million dollars. What do you think was going to happen when you moved on to a golf course? So that. That seemed kind of like bullshit to me. Um, so, yeah. Oh, I also saw this was kind of in relation to the draft in the lead up to it. Somebody tweeted out, uh, throwback to when Jamarcus Russell was given a blank game tape by the coaches because they didn't think he was studying the film. And he came back and started talking about how he studied it and learned so much from it. So I guess their, uh, I guess their plan worked out. Um, what else we got? Oh. So in my house, I've got this, this interest. it's kind of a weird little setup. You come in the front door and you can kind of go right and get into the kitchen or you can go left and it's into my living room. It's just a big circle. And my dog loves to pick something up and, and run around in a circle and have you chase him. But the thing is, he doesn't like making left turns. He only wants to run and make right turns. And it, it kind of got me thinking. My dog is a, a yellow lab in, of the English lab variety. You know, they have English labs or American labs. My English lab dog only makes likes to make right turns. Like he's driving on the, you know, on the opposite side of the road. You know, he like drives on the right side and only likes to go that way. So my dog's weird. That's uh, that's something I've always noticed. Uh, oh, oh, so we've, I've talked about doing pizza and making our own homemade pizza, homemade dough, homemade sauce. We do all that. Well, we've been struggling to get it onto the pizza stone. Turns out. If you get the right mix of uh, flour, and I'm going to butcher this. I always say this wrong. Semolina. I think it's half flour, half semolina mix. It makes it slide real nice. And you can use a, a piece of cardboard 
as a substitute for a pizza peel. If you're a cheap fucker like I am, you don't want to pay for a pizza peel. Get a piece of cardboard from a box, put the flour and semolina. I think, I think I'm saying that right. Mix that in the mixture. I'll put it under. You can slide it right onto the pizza stone. Works like a charm. Works like a charm. What else do we got going on here? Oh, uh, it was the 30th, or not 30th, April 30th, rather, was the anniversary of Backlash 2000, WWF at the time, Backlash 2000. That pay-per-view was headlined by Triple H versus The Rock with Shane McMahon as the guest referee, and Vince was at ringside, and Stephanie was at ringside, and they had all the shenanigans going on, interference, Shane wouldn't count when The Rock was pinning them. Uh, the Stooges would come out and, and beat up The Rock as, you know, they are also dressed as referees. And, you know, Stone Cold supposed to be in The Rock's corner, but true to form, he wasn't there at the start of the show. and Nobody knew where he was. Well, Stone Cold, he showed up, comes out, levels everybody with a chair. JR just going nuts. He's smoking people with a chair. Patterson, bam, chair shot. Briscoe, bam, chair shot. It was, uh, it was my introduction to wrestling. That was the first wrestling pay-per-view I ever saw. Uh, one of my best friends, Kevin Davenport, his brother had it on, uh, had it videotaped it, you know, recorded on a cassette tape, or not a cassette tape that goes into a car, just a, a regular VHS tape, and we watched that, and I was hooked. Like that was my introduction. I loved it. It was the best. So a, a couple of sports-related things here while we're while we're at the, you know, WWE's not sports, but close enough. Saw this thing about Larry Bird in his prime. You know, his prime kind of got cut a little short because of his back problems. But from the 1979 to 80 season, all the way to the 87 to 88 season, kind of that prime run for the Celtics, they had over 56 wins in every year, over 60 wins, one, two, three, four, five, six times out of that nine years. He finished fourth in the MVP voting in his rookie season the next three years he finished second the next three years he won it and the next two years he finished second so that totals out to five NBA finals trips three titles three MVPs and two finals MVPs so Larry Bird just absolutely killing it during that stretch Uh, also in the sports world Jack Nicholas in the 1970s he played in all 40 majors of those 40 majors he finished in the top 10 35 times. If you ever, just to look at it, you can go to Wikipedia, go to his Wikipedia page, and it shows you, like, their finishes in the majors. His 70s are just nuts. Like, they highlight the top 10s in a color. They might highlight the top 5s, too, but definitely the top 10s or top 5s are highlighted in color, and then all the wins are highlighted in a color. It's just wild. Just just crazy, crazy stuff from those two. Just total badasses. Um, the, the, the weird thing that's kind of come out lately was that... Uh, the government is setting up a disinformation governance board under the Department of Homeland Security. I mean, what's that, man? What's somebody been reading 1984 and they were uh, reading it uh, from the wrong, you know, the wrong perception? They thought the the bad guys in that movie were the good guys. Pretty weird, man. Pretty weird. And hey, even if you think the quote unquote disinformation that they're going to be, you know, filtering out and saying can't be shared. What happens when the next guy gets in there? What if the next guy's not somebody you like and they decide the stuff you think is true or feel to be true or the stats say it is true, they decide they don't like that, then that becomes disinformation. So that, that, that's no good. No good. No good there. 
So yeah. So okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna finish this off. I got two questions. One I saw online. I thought this one was really interesting. What is the first major news story that you can remember, like growing up as a kid? You know, your memories are kind of hazy, but you can really remember something. For me, and I'm gonna put these in questions in the in the app, so you can go in and you, when you listen to the pod, you can go in and answer these questions. I think I'll try and get that set up. But for me, the first major news story I remember was Bill Clinton's impeachment trial, and I believe that all you know, tied back into the Monica Lewinsky thing. So that was the first thing I remember. The other thing, and this was a question posed to me by my brother. How many people would it take to take down a silverback gorilla? Think about that one. And I'm going to try and get that posted as a question too. How many people does it take to take down a silverback? It's got to be a lot. It's not two for sure. We, we talked about four, kind of the four people that watch uh, the UFC. It's definitely not that. Um, I say the four people that watch UFC. The four people that we get together with and watch UFC, we couldn't do it. That's for sure. So, I mean, is it eight? Is it ten? Is it twenty? Like, how many people is it going to take? Because that gorilla is going to fuck some people up. So, those are my questions. If, you can fi- if I can figure out how to get them posted, give me an answer. Give me an answer. It'll be uh, fun to see what everybody else thinks. So, let's get this thing wrapped up. Okay, everybody. Closing time. Appreciate all you guys as always. Thank you so much. If you if you made it to the end here and you've listened, I appreciate everybody coming back and keeping them listening and, and giving me feedback and sharing it with your friends and you know giving me a like on Facebook or Instagram when I post the stuff. I really appreciate everything. So thank you guys so much. Gonna be back next week. Got UFC 274 to cover. The the recap of the Canelo fight. Uh, the hockey playoffs are starting up. The NBA playoffs are going in full swing. I might touch on those a little bit. Uh, there's going to be some golf to talk about. We, are, Like I said, we're inching closer to the PGA. So a lot of fun stuff coming up. Uh, again, thank you to all of our guests this week. Uh, three guests, MJ, Bill, Brad. Thank you guys so much for contributing. I appreciate you guys. I appreciate all the listeners. I, I can't say thank you enough. So thank you one more time. We'll look forward to seeing you next week. Till then, peace.